Did you know that studies have shown affirmations can profoundly influence your psychological well-being, enhancing self-confidence and reducing anxiety? Here at Positive Birth Australia, we have crafted a 20-minute birth affirmations track filled with soulful, carefully curated affirmations to empower, inspire, and guide you to deeply remember the power you hold within. And to my fellow belly birth mothers, we have created a track specifically for you to honor that all birth is a sacred moment of profound significance. For only $5, you can download and immerse yourself in our affirmations track to transform your mindset in the lead up to birth and during labor, serving as a potent reminder of the inherent power and love you possess. Visit us at www.positivebirthaustralia.com or head to the show notes and follow the link provided to start your journey toward a more empowered birth experience. Welcome to Positive Birth Australia, a podcast created to empower and educate mothers along their own pregnancy journey. Each week, I'll be sharing insightful and inspiring birth stories and advice in the hopes to help you create your own positive birth experience. I'm your host, Sky Marie. Let's get into today's show. Welcome back, guys. Today's show is such a big one for me personally because it's featuring a woman I respect so greatly, birth educator, birth attendant, counselor, and author, Rhea Dempsey. Rhea's well-known book, Birth with Confidence, has helped awaken and guide so many of us along our journeys, and her latest release, Beyond the Birth Plan, is of equal magnitude. Rhea shares her three birth stories, focusing a lot on her first birth and unpacking how that whole sequence of events impacted her. Although extremely confronting and confusing at the time, she attributes a lot of her why to that experience and the work that unfolded throughout her many years as a birth activist. We chat about life before the epidural and how this initially welcome drug has fueled the misconception around pain during childbirth. And she shares advice for the willing women wanting a normal physiological birth on how to navigate the current birth culture within the hospital system. It gives me the greatest pleasure to share this wonderful wise woman with you all today, guys. Enjoy. Rhea, I've heard you referred to as the birth queen by many respected women in the field, so I feel extremely honored to share you with my listeners today. Thank you so much for being here. Good, Sky. I'm happy to be here. And uh, well, nice to be, to be felt to be such like that. Um, <laughs> it's well deserved. Good. So I want to take it all the way back to your births. You had your first daughter over 30 years ago. How did each of your births impact you? And were those experiences what motivated you to sort of go down this path of supporting and educating women? Yes, definitely. Um, so my first daughter actually was born 42 years ago. Oh, okay. So, um, And really, you know, not only me, but you'll find actually if you scratch the surface of, of a lot of women who are working in the birth field, particularly I guess around any birth activism, mm-hmm. that often we come from what we might call uh, wound, have become wounded healers in a way, mm-hmm. coming through those first birth experiences where they didn't go as we had hoped or planned and, and then really just trying to, you know, understand what the fuck happened there and, and – <laughs> As we do that, then we come to see, you know, a whole lot of things that were impacting on that, both personal as well as the sort of structural. So for me, my first daughter's birth, as I say, all those years ago, and some of the language that I use now and our understandings more generally, you know, we didn't really understand it in this way back then. It was just that was how birth was done. But I, I say really that that was a traumatic birth. And some of the aspects about that were... Um, my own, so I was a physical education teacher and an outdoor adventure facilitator and, you know, very, very much in my body. So I had a, a great sort of trust and I would say arrogance in my body's capacity. Mm-hmm. And so just sort of felt, well, you know, 
it's all going to go straightforward. It's going to be fine. I had people. I had my first daughter in England, and I had some friends around me who were. Uh, you know, I came to have a sense later that they were trying to steer me down. But, you know, have you read this book? Have you read that book? But I, in my sort of arrogant trust of my body, I just felt like, ah, you know, it's all going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I played around a little bit with a home birth, but in England at that time, I mean, uh, if the situation had been diff- different, I would have had that home birth and then maybe I wouldn't be sitting here today. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but... Um, just the way the system worked, I wasn't with a first baby. I wasn't able to to do that. So I just then went to the local hospital, which was a huge, big tertiary level hospital in London, mm-hmm. and um, did try a, a bit. You know, went along to the classes at that point were much more like it was just the beginning of something that we'd call birth education. Um, but it was conducted from the hospitals and it was just basically a big lecture with an obstetrician standing up the front with, you know, maybe a hundred people in the, in the room mm-hmm. and did my best to, to ask a few questions in that. And one of the questions I asked, and, and this becomes relevant later was, you know, well, do they do things routinely, you know, um, as routine? practices and and in particular I asked about episiotomies and they said no no we don't do them routinely you know we only do them if they're necessary and blah 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 so yeah I I went into that situation feeling it's going to be very straightforward Mm -hmm. doing a little bit of uh, shaping it around the edges but not very much trusting myself and also then being open to what was on offer and coming much later that that's like that trance of acquiescence that I call, you know, that so many of us still have when we go into hospital situations in a medical situation. So we just feel like, yeah, well, they know what they're doing. They have our best interests. What, they, what they're suggesting is obviously necessary. And so that clash of my own trust of my body but not not unpacking what was on offer in terms of the standard or routine care, try as I might. So then we had this big big clash so what happened in her labor was um well it wasn't the first thing I I had obviously been in pre-labor through most of the day before the membranes ruptured in about 10 30 in the morning and that partly that was because my mum had just flown in from Australia that that day and so I was very distracted by catching up with her after a few years of not seeing her and she came laden with a case full of, (laughs) this is the first grandchild in our family, so a case Mm. presents from Australia for this new, so that kept me a bit distracted. I was a bit uncomfortable but, you know, not really very pressured by it all but the membranes ruptured around 10, started leaking about 10.30 at night and so that then set off this whole thing when we hospital they sent an ambulance with bells and whistles home so then you know we didn't really understand so much about the hormones yeah and them at that point but I mean we know now so um pretty much everything whatever had been going on Mm. uh, had stopped at that point anyway I got to the hospital maybe about 11 o'clock at night and the beautiful midwife on the night shift and I do understand there's a difference if you front up to the hospital during the day or during the night. Okay. Um, and she checked me and said, oh, you're, you know, you're six centimetres dilated. And I'm like, oh, right, pretty fantastic. Yeah, I, this body, well, brilliant. <laughs> Even though I was in labour, you know, and I'm six centimetres dilated. How brilliant. Um, so she, so there were routines, you know, supposed, supposedly the shave, the enema and various things which were still that point but she said oh you know you're going to just soon we won't need to do any of those things but however the the ambulance ride and everything had obviously done its work in terms of my adrenaline being up and so all they had been going on during that day then entirely stopped and that then started the the you now we have brilliant midwifery research that we didn't have then looking at all of these things but the often escalation that happens within, you know, births that we then start to talk about as being traumatic of coercion and control and bullying and punitive behaviour and so on in order 
not just to suggest that it would be a good idea to put the drip up and get the labour going, but then through all of these means to break down myself and my husband's, um, you know, resolve and understanding until eventually worn down, as so many women are, to eventually just say, oh, well, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, yes, let's. So then the drip was put up and and then, <laughs> then um, it's like all the things that weren't done overnight. So then the enema happened, then the shave happened, then the without any yeah. asking or questioning, you know, the shot of pethidine and the whole thing, all all of a sudden everything is, is taken over. Yeah. Um, my body still worked very well and that darling baby, she stayed good and strong, so there were not any – there was a drama I'll come to, but there wasn't a drama around how she was. Mm -hmm. um, she then was born um, episiotomy, come back later, um, so maybe just to say, you know, this was in the era, this is the first generation of men coming into the birth space. So okay. the father of my daughter was there and, but first generation of men, uh, I mean, they were, they were there, but they were gowned up. They had to sort of stand in the corner. They had to go out pretty well at any time, anything medical was happening. So, oh, okay. and, and no, it's not like, you know, as we think about fathers of being in that birth space now it's very different was a very different scene yeah okay anyway after she was born then the routine third stage became a um, major medical drama because in some forceful pulling of the mm. cord the cord broke with the her placenta so now and this is important I'm, I'm making a lot of points in telling this story mm -hmm. because this is not only I mean, from my point of view, probably I'm, I was more bemused than traumatized by that. I don't really know what was going on. Yeah, okay. Like all of a sudden our bells and whistles and somebody's obviously pressed a code. Yeah. And if you're in a hospital, if a code is pushed, then pretty well anybody, any medical staff who are available anywhere in the hospital rush to that room. So in the case of a in the maternity ward, they know it's in the maternity ward, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're only midwives or obstetricians that are rushing there. It can be just anybody. I didn't know that. They rush to the room, and then when they get to the room, then then they find out what the thing is, and some people might then move away, or, or the hierarchy of who's got the best knowledge to deal with the situations starts to ta to, to to shape what's happening. Mm -hmm. But what was happening? So for me. I was being acted upon and not fully understanding. Yeah. So I was, I was bleeding a lot, and so they're having now to manually remove the placenta from inside me. Um, but the point, one of the points I want to make is that so my husband then, when that code is called, he's pushed out of the room. Yeah. yeah? So that's drama now happening. He's pushed out of the room, not knowing what's going on. Yeah. And as he was standing just outside the door of the room, wondering what's he's hearing medical staff running into the room, and two of them running past him. One of the one person said, "You know, do you know what's going on in there?" Because they're coming to the call; they don't know until they get into the room what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. So one asked the other, "Do you know what's going on in there?" And the other saying. No, not really. I just know. I've just heard that there's there's a woman bleeding out in there. Mm. This is what my husband is hearing outside the door about what is happening to me in that. Mm. Um, I I'm jumping ahead a little bit now, but I, I'll come back. But you know, through the ensuing year and a half or so before I was pregnant again, and then having my next baby, which we'll talk about, I was processing that birth. Mm -hmm. Not not in any formal way, not really understanding that's what I was doing, but I, I was in, compelled to tell the story over and over again wherever I could, yeah. whenever I could, whenever I talked about it, I cried about it, whenever I so just naturally processing. Yeah. But I was doing that work and I had no awareness at that time, neither did my husband and I don't think neither did we more generally and I think we still were only just coming to, the, to an understanding about the trauma that fathers or, or partners of women or yeah. other people in that birth space 
about the trauma that they carry from these stories too. So that's a, that's still to reckon with. Even even actually, we're not fully reckoning with birth trauma fully anyway yet. Yeah. So so that was all happening. Eventually, that all settled down, and um, they brought him in. And my daughter, while all that was happening, you know, so back in that era, the baby was sort of taken from me. We knew she was a girl, and she was off to the side while all this was happening. And I, I was dimly aware of her crying, crying, crying. But really, then when that all settled down, obviously, and my placenta was delivered and they'd sorted out what all that was about, so she sort of passed past us, and she was taken off. You know, the, they, she she was fine. I said she's fine. We're just going to take her up to the nursery now, and you'll see her later. Mm-hmm. So my husband and I, at that point, then the cup of tea and the biscuit came, and I, you know, like that that first cup of tea after a birth, I tell you, is the best cup of tea you're ever going to have. <laughs> <laughs> But like, we felt like we we're clinging to some life raft. So yeah. all of that happening, just to skip forward then, I stayed in hospital. At that time, the stay in hospital could be somewhere between six and ten days, or five, five and eight days. Yeah. I signed myself out after um, just a bit under 20, uh, 48 hours. A few realisations came to me. Um, one of them was, and I write about this in bits and pieces of it in both of my books. So I'd gone to that hospital again asking, well, do they do rooming in? What what they did was gave me, said more or less gave women uh, sleeping tablets when they'd finished their, when the birth was finished so that they could get a good rest. Yes? Yeah. This is still coming out of those earlier eras. So they could get a good rest. Um, so the baby was in the nursery. Mm. and. I, a beautiful little bit, I'm going to tell you. I'm probably crying myself when, when I remember this. <laughs> so in a beautiful way. Yeah. That um, I, again, this is a 12-bed ward back then, so 12 beds in the ward, all of us, 10 of us separated from one another by, you know, you know the, the curtain around the bed, mm-hmm. and um, then two two sections that were more like little mini rooms within the partitions, and during the time that I was in, it was a great camaraderie actually with the with the mums mm-hmm. there. We're trying to do our breastfeeding, and some of them have been there for a few days already, and so on. So they're uh, calling backwards and forwards and giving a bit more support, and have developed over the even the short time I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I was. I woke from that that uh, drugged sleep, feeling somebody stroking my hand. Yeah. Uh, my husband had been sent sent off, and uh, I didn't. Well, I, in fact, at that point, I didn't know where my daughter was. And anyway, this I felt this stroke in my hand, and I sort of dimly came to, and there was this beautiful woman, West West Indian, rich language and rich. T- voice and so warm, who I'd met during the physical classes at the hospital during the pregnancy. And she was having her fourth and fifth babies, twins. Oh, wow. Um, so I had met her. Anyway, there she is sitting by my bed, stro- holding my hand, stroking my hand. And if I could do justice to the warmth of the of the accent, you know, but anyway, she started, darling, you know, I've heard you crying and now I'm in the next bed. I heard you crying. What's what's wrong? Um, and so I realised that she said that I could feel my pillow is very wet. So obviously I fell in this drug, drug sleep, and I I said to her, I, I don't know where my baby is. I don't know. Where... Oh, she, darling, she she rose up in her majesty. She said, "What you where your baby is?" <laughs> Went storming down the, the aisle, you know, calling to the to anybody, said, "This woman doesn't know where her baby is. She must have her baby." Oh wow! I was like, "This is apart from the gift of it, the yeah. gift of it from woman to woman, you know, that, but the gift of it in terms of, um, uh, because if I if she hadn't have done that, I would have stayed probably waking from my sleep and crying in my bed and with." Yeah. 
urgency to feel like I would storm up and find where is my baby. Mm. She is modeling for me, you know, this strong maternal instinct and acting on it and and cutting through all of the rules, regulations and what you should and you shouldn't do and so on and just going and getting my baby. So this thing comes a procession of her walking down, here's your baby with the baby in the little, you know, carrier that they're pushing and the midwife coming along as she's reclaimed my baby for me from, from the nursery. Wow. Whenever I think of that or any way I bow down before that woman for that yeah. feisty fight that is going to take it up to end. So, so my baby comes to me and then, surprise, surprise, all of a sudden, you know, started to feel like, Mm, I wanted to take all those wraps off those that baby. I wanted to get myself naked. I wanted to get that baby against my skin. I wanted to tuck that baby into that bed. I want to have that baby on my breast. I want yeah. instincts starting to just unfold. But of course, the rules and regulations in the hospital will know you had to wash your breast and your hands before you touch the baby. You have to have the baby. You have to sit in that chair to feed the baby. You can't have the baby on the bed. Blah blah blah. So. I felt quietly I was going crazy. I was in this conflict between obviously my instincts being awakened and being sort of rocket-fueled by this example of this beautiful woman who who was my queen at that point yeah. and coming up against all these rules and regulations about what I should or should be doing. And it was that, as I said, I'd found out during that time when I asked people, okay, well, who – they were talking about their episiotomies. I said, well, who's had episiotomies? And of that group, so there are 12 women, 10 of us had had episiotomies, the other two had had Caesars. I was like, what? You know, mm. told, no, no, we only do them routinely. Well, that means obviously then women's bodies don't work and they're not formed well, birthing, or there's something else going on here. Mm. So I planted a seed of some of that you know, activism and questioning and what have you. Anyway, I signed myself out against recommendations and just got the hell out of there, got home and got started on on mothering my baby with my own agency rather than needing somebody else to claim her for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then, as I say, over those next that next period of time, I was processing fully consciously knowing I was processing, telling that story, telling that story, crying, yeah. crying, couldn't help but cry when I talked about it and so on. But my then husband was, of course, well, he was supporting me, yeah. not really addressing all of that, as we know. I mean, it sits there still till it's, it came, it was resolved for him through the next two births, but so that was the. So I came out of that birth, birth thinking, you know, what the fuck happened there? Mm. And so started to not only, as I'm saying, sort of process it, but really unpack it in mm-hmm. terms of, was you know, what, what, what. Uh, we then, I'm Australian. My then husband was uh, from England. Mm-hmm. We'd come back to Australia, so I, we came back to Australia when that darling baby daughter was four months old and settled in here to Melbourne. And luckily, I have good friends, I mean, good friends anyway, but smart and wise friends who had previously been having birth centre births here in Melbourne mm-hmm. and one or two of them home births Beautiful. way back then for the beginning reclaiming home birth in, in Australia. Yeah. That's a whole other story to tell. Mm-hmm. But maybe just if any of the listeners have ever read anything from Ina May Gaskin. Oh, yeah, she's a favourite. So that reclaiming of home birth that happened that she describes, she describes it, of course, more in terms of community, but that was happening all over in Australia as well. It's just that the Americans, they wrote about it. <laughs> um, so it's more or less the same story. So that was happening here. So I luckily was had had those contacts. So, And certainly I knew that I was not going back into any hospital, not because I really had a vision of what birth, you know, the beauty that birth could be, mm-hmm. Rather, I was feeling, well, I don't know if I go back into that situation whether I would have that autonomy to, to hold my ground, to hold, yeah. hold my place. So I, the home birth was, that was the thing. Mm-hmm. So in Melbourne, and again, these are such trips down memory lane because things are now, but back in that era, 
home birth was reclaimed in Australia as it was in um, America from those stories, that there were beautiful GPs, mainly men because there weren't that many female GPs back then, but beautiful GPs who were family GPs who who started to then be supporting home birth. Oh, how amazing. Someone here in Melbourne who, because he was an older guy and still remembered, you know, home births from, from way back. Mm. So, so around those GPs, there were a few of them across Australia, then networks of, of some hospital-trained midwives but also lay midwives started to gather, and so this was the sort of the, the fledgling home birth scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tapped into that, and our next baby was born at home, beautiful, beautiful home birth at home in front of the fire on a wow. late, early August afternoon. <laughs> and as so, so often happened at that time, these home births were parties. The oh. early home births, you know, we were inviting everybody from <laughs> the street. Oh. Uh, I think we had, um, I think at that point we there were a few other kids there. We had good – anyway, not to list them all, but I think there were 12 or 14 people, yeah? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and that wasn't unusual. We, we've we since learnt, those of us who work in birth, that often the more people you have at the, at the birth, often the longer the labour goes because yeah. you've just got to enjoy that party. If, yeah. You know, you've got people and see. But, yeah. So it's sort of honed down a bit, but occasionally still – Certainly, I've been involved in some beautiful, big celebratory bursts like that. Mm-hmm. What I would say to any of the listeners that, uh, and uh, unless you or until you really feel like you've you're centered in your birthing capacity, mm-hmm. and that usually takes a birth or you know a birth or two, I wouldn't be inviting a whole lot of people. Yeah, you know? but once you once you feel you've got that confidence. Yeah. Have a party. Bring the mob in. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> if that's what your feeling is. Yeah. Anyway. So can I quickly ask if that birth helped to heal any of the past trauma that you had from your first daughter's birth? Yes, it did. It did. And a few things that particularly we did at that point, which were coming out of my, my and I wouldn't have even called, you know, we've I wouldn't have called it healing that trauma. I wouldn't have called it trauma. I would That language wouldn't play. Yeah. It was just that. I guess what I would have called it was well, the things I missed out on and, yeah, okay. and the things that she missed out on mm-hmm. and also that feeling of, as I said, that I wanted to just – I did have that trust in my body mm-hmm. and I still – and I that hadn't been – out of that whole drama, I guess because of the story about the, epi, the episiotomies, mm-hmm. I had come to the thing that my body was okay actually – that they had stuffed it up, yeah, right. you know, it was and so that was the home birth, and also the fact with the home birth that I don't didn't know whether I would be able to resist if they started to say, well, we're going to do this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. So I had a trust in my body that that I, I didn't have that, which sadly so many women take it all all that system mm-hmm. stuff to their lack of trust in their own bodies. Now that that wasn't the story for me. Um, it was more about feeling like, well, we're in a good place to birth. I feel safe. Mm-hmm. It's going to be going to go well. But I wanted to make up for some gaps. And the gaps were that we as a couple were more uh, in tune with one another rather than, you know, that him being there but us not really being together. Yeah. Uh, well, that was beautiful. Um, just the setting, you know, in front of the – on the floor – preparing all of that, you know, the, the beautiful thing of preparing the nest, so much love and care and ritual mm. those nests. And if you're going into hospital, of course, then it still can be done, but not not to that same extent. Uh, then the thing about the contact, you know, the baby, the baby coming directly to me, not going anywhere else, yeah. staying with me. And also because of the drama of the – the, you know, the manual removal and all that drama. Mm-hmm. I, f- I did sort of in my feeling and emotions tune a bit more into third stage. What is third stage about? And from my sense of it still, that, you know, the, the placenta is the baby's. Mm. The baby is connected 
you know, the placenta comes from the fertilized egg. It's not my placenta. Yeah. It lives in my womb and is fueled and nurtured and grown in my womb, but it's the baby's placenta. And so um, I felt like the babe, we need to be particularly careful about the baby's experience in its birth and then the birth of its placenta. Mm. We know much more about this now. We know much more about this both in terms of cord blood and yeah. not, you know, delayed clamping and um, lotus birth and so on. But this, this, this was uh, maybe fed into some of that, some of that, but it was really before that was really being speak, spoken about more widely. Yeah, okay. I was feeling it in terms of if, if there was a problem with the placenta. Now, either it was formed because they, it was jumped on medically. If it was delayed, that means, and then they had to do something about it, I was feeling like, well, how can I honour and pay attention to that third stage moving more smoothly? And so this is, um, well, the baby needs to be connected because if it's if that's part of the baby, the baby needs to call its placenta in when it's when it's you know when it's ready, if you like, yeah. be ready just the same as the birth, you know, basically. Mothers just have to open their bodies and babies do their thing and birth themselves. Then I have to be ready to release the placenta and let the baby do that. Of course, sounds so simple, not quite so simple, <laughs> the doing of it all. Um, so I was attuned to that connection. So we had, or I had felt, and I'd put this to my husband, that I felt like, yeah, we'd leave, leave it alone. I'd spoken about it with the doctor, and he said, well, I don't want to do anything. To, you know, we're just going to wait on that placenta. And this is a major problem with bleeding. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, well, then I, we'd been talking about it. I said, I think I need to reunite the baby with the placenta. You know, once a baby's born, to, to bring the placenta to the baby because it's part of the baby. Because I was mindful of my first daughter being so, so distressed mm-hmm. in separation yeah us not seeing one another for 12 hours or something mm. um so when she was born she was unsettled okay uh so then when the placenta was born and it came forwardly uh, because my husband said i think he was thinking i'm probably going off the deep end here you know well let's wait and see how it goes you know, in terms of the reuniting with the placenta let's wait and see yeah so anyway He's, she was unsettled, so we looked at one. It just felt like one of those magic moments that can happen where it felt like, yeah, reunite her with a placenta. So she was on me, and so then we put that beautiful, warm, warm, still alive uh, placenta onto her back and snuggled. I mean, it was a bit messy, as you can imagine, but just everything was quiet, and it was just one of those beautiful moments. Yeah. I still, you know, everybody's had a, had tears in their eyes at the sort of magic of that moment as she settled. And, of course, at the birth, so we were in our own little bubble, but we're in the room. And when I did look up after she was born and after the placenta and everything had settled, that 12 people were quietly, you know, just quietly around the edges of the room, respectfully witnessing and delighting in that that, that, that energy there. So So from the point of view, certainly, of things going straight forwardly yeah. and feeling that my body trusting not that I didn't trust my body but was knowing all well, in the right circumstance my body will do it mm-hmm. the sort of the sacred maybe or just that magic of of following my feeling and mm-hmm. being in and all of that so that was that certainly was healing yeah and was that the birth that motivated you to head down this path of educating and supporting women no oh Okay. No, thank you for <laughs> saying that because that was happening in between those two births. Right, okay. I was already, before I was pregnant with my next daughter and also during the time of being pregnant with that second daughter, mm-hmm. because of the network, my friendship network there, I had been already asked to three other births, <sighs> two, two home births and another one at, at one of the birth centres yeah. to, be, to be there to look after the toddler. So right. there were second babies. Of, of my friends, so I was there with my toddler, who were friends with their toddlers, yeah. to look after the toddler at the home birth and just be there. Yeah. So, and do you know about those second babies? They don't usually care and wait for anybody. <laughs> they, they, 
focused on the case of second baby. So, of course, quite often, well, in those two cases, before this second birth of my own, those babies came shooting out and somebody somebody was catching the baby and that was me. Amazing. So this is the seventies for you. Yeah. So that was also that gift to me mm-hmm. for my my own birth, but also that education of like. So that was happening. Then um, when my second daughter was born, all of that, I'm in a network of, of the home birth scene that's starting to, um, I mean, let's not get too carried away because still the percentage of home births happening is still only 0.3 of a percent of babies home. So we're not, it's just that I was in that scene. So it felt everybody was having home births. So that thing, and then, yes, after having her, I became involved with the Childbirth Education Association mm-hmm. here in Melbourne and started more formally training and being involved and then being at more births in between my second baby and then my third mm-hmm. baby, another home birth. And um, the second, the first home birth, the second baby, that happened on a Saturday. It was like a celebration, you know, celebration party on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. My third daughter born at home happened, you know, like on a worker day Wednesday morning. I was beautiful birth, beautiful, beautiful birth. But then, you know, I was up, had the washing on by about, you know, in the morning. So just so, just family life. My yeah. one of my sisters were there. Actually, the it was basically just us, not out of plan, but again a um a reasonably fast birth. And the GP who was our the doctor who was supporting home births got yeah. there a little later. Maybe I might just say, just to talk about these babies, mm-hmm. not particularly, I mean, they happen to be my babies, the ones I'm talking about, just focusing on those babies. Mm-hmm. My eldest daughter was four. My second daughter was two. They're, they're exactly one month and one day apart, the three of them. So I'm now having my third baby. So there's a two-year-old toddler in the room and a four-year-old, my sister, my younger sister, who was there with them and my then husband and the birth happened. And so this third daughter, mm-hmm. beautiful birth, quite straightforward, she, her head was born. Mm-hmm. Her eyes were open. She was looking around. She sat on the perineum like that. Her, her dad was receiving her, so he was stroking her head. Her four-year-old sister was stroking her head, but her two-year-old sister who, of course, a little bit more competition between the baby and the toddler. <laughs> she is steadfastly standing there looking. She's, she's made eye contact with them all, got <laughs> tightly behind her back, you know, as if saying, no, I'm not going to. The potency of this little baby before she emerged, and this is her nature in the world. Yeah. Um, eventually, the two-year-old just tentatively stroked her head, and with that touch, out she came. And that was five-minute process, how fantastic, but oh. sitting, being ready to, to be received in the circle of beautiful. So beautiful. Now, have you supported your daughters? Have I they? Have. Yeah. Um, what was that like as a mum? So I have had the privilege of supporting all of my own grandchildren, but also all of the great-grand, the, the great what are they? My grand nieces and nephew. All of the of my family. And could life be more privileged? Really? So beautiful. Anyway, so being so, it was my own first daughter who you've heard the story. Who was the first having the first grandchild in the next generation, mm-hmm. and um, just as it happened, some of my three of my grandchildren have been born at my home as well. Just in terms of space and place uh, rather than they, they were in rented accommodation, but, but, you know, at that point, so it was just easier to, to be here. Yeah. So I guess, I don't know, I don't know whether we, any of us ever had a sort of a formal thing about, well, it was just like, well, mum, you know, we're going to have the baby at your place, yeah, okay. <laughs> but I did with my eldest daughter, so this is the fourth child, say, well, okay, yeah, you're going to have the baby here, great. So what role do you, you know, do you 
am I going to be sort of be the mum making cups of tea and making sure everybody's got things to eat and drink and what have you, or or um, or do you think I'm going to be a bit closer, you know, giving you support in the birth or what have you? And she <laughs> she grabbed my hands, looked me in the eye, and she said, Mum. I hear that you know quite a lot about birth <laughs> and I everything you know in that space. Oh, that's amazing. Good, good. All right. <laughs> um, so beautiful by then was wasn't, you know, the privately practicing midwives were in the picture and of course I'd been at many hundreds of births with, with some of the beautiful midwives here in, in Melbourne. So it's like the team was set in, and of course my been around all that birth stuff and they know all these midwives so again that beautifully connected set of mm. almost not having to make decisions just like well of course Jen, Jenny will be there of course Helen will be there you know yeah these are the birth the birthing women around them that they've known all their lives and so on so you know in terms of so lucky and so yeah you know with what we know now all the research now about continuity yeah mm -hmm. it's just gold it's gold well if you then also think in terms of continuity in terms of the life of small daughters growing and mm. being around their mums and around the midwives who then will be their midwives when they have their babies oh, i mean that's incredible that's generational continuity yeah, and so blessed and i read in your latest book beyond the birth plan that they would become quite the experts at assessing what stage a labouring mother was at just by exactly. answering the phone. Because, of course, that, that's the days before mobile phones. That's the days when a home phone on the wall, you know, and whoever answers it, they, they get it. So, yeah. I mean, it's they're very privileged and I'm sure there are others. But, of course, generations gone by, there there would be many more young young girls, young women exposed in that way to being around birth more, mm. it, we, we've sort of got it so siloed off into the hospitals and that, yeah, that women, young girls, young women are not, not being exposed to, yeah. to normal process of it apart from through stories and they're not great or through that medical lens, unfortunately. Yeah. Can so, I ask quickly what advice you would give to women that have to birth in a hospital setting but want a natural drug-free birth because Home birth is obviously financially or medically not an option for some women. Yes, yeah, so the first, I mean, in Melbourne, we've got two hospital-based home birth programs. Okay. Adelaide, they've got one. In Perth, they've got one. In Sydney, I think they've just got one. So certainly, if at all possible, I'm feeling that they could at least try and track that down. Mm -hmm. The numbers of, you know, maybe don't add up, but it's, you need to search it and of course it's a political action leader for all of these things to make sure that that is much more possible yeah so true so get back to your your question so the first thing that they need to do is to understand that there is a system in the hospitals i mean maybe lots of women already work in in large in institutions or bureaucracies or systems based work processes if they if they are and they look to the their own what happens in their own workplace you know how many of the things that they have to pay attention to in their work life actually relate specifically to the end product or the end experience for the for the consumer or whatever mm -hmm. and of course we know that you know only a small percentage of them relate actually to the to the consumer let's use that language mm -hmm. Because lots of them are about workplace issues or, you know, workplace safety, a whole lot of things that relate in and amongst the people who work there as a way to make that work for that, for, for that within that system, not necessarily all geared for the end product of the consumer. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what they have to understand about hospitals. They are huge and complex bureaucracies, huge and complex institutions. And so many of the rules, regulations, routines and what have you are about the smooth working of that place as a place of work, mm -hmm. as a place of processes, not necessarily because for the individual needs of the mother and her baby. Mm -hmm. And I mean to make big institutions work, you've got to have some nor you know, you've got to have some range of what's normal and what's normal and not normal and so on. A whole lot of the things that come into play then about what's high risk, what's low risk and what have you, then can't isn't individually based. It's it's more across the process of what 
how the hospital can work. Particularly in terms of birth, because birth, like they've got to have predictable systems and workflow and work numbers and what have you, but it's based around an unpredictable life event. Mm. I always make this point. A few years ago here in Melbourne, one of the big hospitals here around, well, we're coming up to Easter. In fact, we've just had the Easter full moon. And one of the hospitals on the Easter full moon two years ago had 74 births in 72 hours. So how does a a whole system, large system, prepare for that. Mm. Well, one of the ways, I'll tell you one of the ways they prepare, prepare for it, and probably they do this every time before a full moon, because we know full moon is usually going to bring a few more babies out. So maybe it's suggested to women who are due a bit before the full moon or the new moon, oh, maybe your baby's getting a bit too big, mm. a bit too small. Maybe we're a bit worried about your baby, or maybe they, whatever. But you know, it'd be a good idea, maybe if we induce this week. And I know this happens. Yeah. Now, if they were to say, if they, so, it's all those suggestions to manage workplace flow. Does that make sense to you? Definitely. All those suggestions to the mother, to the father, to the partner, whatever, um, to the family are placed in the context of either the mother's body not working well or the baby not well. Mm. If, on the other hand, they were to say to a pregnant woman, look, we're coming up to the Easter full moon, it's going to be bedlam in here. Do you mind if we induce your baby like 10 days early? It should be okay, but that'll just make it a lot easier for the hospital here to work. Mm. Well, if they were to say that, some women may well say, well, that's fine with me. But what in in talking about it as a, as a structure, systematic issue as opposed to talking about it in ways that make it seem as if it's about the mother's body or the baby's well-being that would the whole scene yeah but pretty all of the things that are done in service of the smooth running of I know large institutions difficulties in that but to ensure the smoothest running of the bureaucracy of the power plays of the work of the hospitals mm. it's shaped to make it seem to the woman that her body doesn't work or that her baby is that birth is so dangerous mm. or that her baby is imperiled which then comes next time next time you know it goes on goes on so to go back to your question, they need to understand these are big systems, big institutions, and they have their whole protocols to make all that work smoothly. And so they need any time anything is being suggested to them to actually keep asking questions about they've got to prove to you that this specifically relates to you and your body, your baby and their body, and not part of some other other systems so that you can and if they're saying there's this risk factor and this factor you need the caregiver to personalize individualize those risk factors to you yeah, okay. part of the first part of the work then one of the other things that they need to do so they have got to declare themselves as being what i call a willing woman yeah a woman who wants to have a go, who wants to work with that normal physiological childbirth, she wants to be supported to do that work, and she wants to find her own resources with that support to work to birth her baby, normal physiological childbirth. So that's what I call a willing woman. Um, and I do have now lots of midwives suggest, you know, my books and and certain Melbourne, you know, I've known a little bit, and if I see a midwife in the street, I come up and say, Rhea, I had one of your willing women the other day. It was so fantastic. <laughs> How amazing. You, know, you maybe don't have to say, I am a willing woman, but mm-hmm. you need to declare yourself, and this is what this is what I say. You need to uh, say something like this on the, the top of their birth plan. Yeah. It's my intention to work towards normal physiological childbirth. Mm-hmm. No good just saying normal birth because we know what that looks like in our culture. Mm-hmm. Normal physiological childbirth. And I would appreciate midwifery support and guidance for working with pain in labor. They have got to use this language because it refers to midwifery research, working with pain. Mm-hmm. It's my intention to work towards normal physiological childbirth. I would appreciate midwifery support and guidance for being active and working with pain in labor. There's, 
so all of the things I'm saying, you know, obviously more complex than I'm saying, but yeah. the midwifery research, beautiful Australian midwifery research, darling Nikki Leap, um, looking at midwives' attitudes towards pain in labor mm-hmm. and that there are midwives who have much more of a medical attitude, which is a pain relief attitude, entirely appropriate for medical situations in hospital where you know, where you go in because you've had an accident or you've got some illness or what have you, and pain relief is, is very uh, important in that context. Mm-hmm. But not so when we're talking about a normal physiological process which we're needing support for working with pain. And I think if we, if you don't want to have a home birth, have a home, have a, have a, go to the gym and have your birth at the weights <laughs> room in a, in a gym. You'd get better support for working with your yeah. labor or your yoga studio or the athletics track or something, you know, we've got to reframe this whole idea about the the functional physiological pain of labor, mm-hmm. which is a big part of my, my what I talk about. So working with pain and the midwives who are there and there are midwives who are hungry to work with women in labor who want to have a go at normal physiological childbirth. Yeah. But unless you're in a continuity of care setting, and in Australia, tragically, only 8% of women can access the continuity of care programs. Mm. So we need lots of political action about these changing these things. Mm. So other than being in those continuity of care programs, then the midwife is a stranger to the mother mm-hmm. and the mother is a stranger to the midwife. So unless you've got this on your birth plan, how does that midwife who could give you that good support for working with pain opposed to pain relief, how does she know who you are? And given that, it's another part of my sky, I'm sure you've read my books. Yes. That, that uh, concept that I talk about. Crisis of crisis confidence. Of conf- yes. Yeah, yeah. Crisis of confidence. Nothing medically going wrong. Mm-hmm. In fact, generally, medically, everything going brilliantly and generally, Everything in terms of the escalating energy and intensity of a brilliantly unfolding labor is coming into this picture. It's just that we don't like it. Mm-hmm. She's too strong. Let's do this. Blah, 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 blah. All of that whinging, whining, complaining. <laughs> so, because that is so prevalent. What happens unless you, unless the mother, the woman, has declared herself on her birth plan that she. Firstly, some of them say, you know, I understand I'm likely to have a crisis of confidence. I would appreciate midwifery support and guidance for working with pain. Mm -hmm. This is how she's got to call that midwife out who would want to support her because otherwise what happens when women are in that crisis of confidence, most of them, that sort of distress and being, you know, on just on a on a new having to adjust to a new groove of intensity the way that is usually the language that usually comes is saying get me the fucking epidural <laughs> and i need it now oh so true or something like that yeah so those midwives who would dearly love to work with you mm-hmm. To support you to work with pain in labor through these crises of confidence. They know that it's possible to get through them. They know that, you know, well supported crisis of confidence, maybe 10 minutes, quarter of an hour, something. It's not like it's the whole of the labor. They, they come at cusps when the labor is just ramping up so beautifully that give a good bit of intensive support at that point. The woman gets on a new groove, off she goes. It's so beautiful. So, mm. but the births get hijacked because at that point, if she is translating that distress instead of being being saying you know support me support me support me help me help me help me or something where people are drawn in instead it comes because what's embedded of course in all contemporary women now is that the fucking epidural exists yeah lucky enough as us oldies we were working in birth before epidurals were in use and sadly we welcomed them in thinking that they would be brilliant in certain cases of very, you know, babies in awkward positions and what have you, how brilliant. Mm. We had not, we did not have the foresight to understand that they would entirely come in and hijack the whole birth scene. You refer to it as a Trojan horse in Beyond the Bethlehem. Every time I talk about it, I bow down in apology. Oh, yeah. We weren't on the case about it earlier, but it is hijacked. It hijacked the, the mind space about pain. Mm-hmm. It's hijacked the work in the hospital, there are, 
going back to that thing about what makes for smoother workplace, well, a smoother workplace in the hospital that's much more predictable is get the woman on the epidural because then we can pretty well project, predict that that's going to screw the labour. So then we have to put a drip up and then we can run the drip at this this amount of mm. amount of um, synthetic oxytocin going in. So then we can predict how long the labour is going to go or anyway we know that you know quite a high percentage of those augmented labours with the epidural on, the baby's going to call the shots and so it'll be a Caesar. And it's much more easy to manage that actually in the hospital because we're, they're much more predictable in knowing how that's going to work. As well as that, for the midwives who are stretched or don't have the skills, they don't have to do any emotion work. Mm. Woman's on the epidural, she's playing Angry Birds or she's watching the telly, she's chatting with her partner and the midwives look at her. Nobody has to do the, any emotion work. Yeah. But midwives who are hungry, the midwives who are guardians, what, what they call and what we call guardians of normal birth, they want to do that emotion work. They want to be present. They want to offer you all their skills about how to help you to work with pain in labor, work across that five, six massive contractions that mark a big shift in the intensity and the brilliance of the labor. They want to just help you to get through that and now some heat, now some stamping, now some dancing, now some good music, now some water, now some shower, now some crying, now some let's get through this. Then on a new groove, you know. But women going into hospital have got to call that midwife out because she's a midwife, she's a stranger to you, you are a stranger to her. All women, when they're in that crisis of confidence, look and sound the same. Mm-hmm. And so the midwife doesn't know whether you were somebody who really always wanted to have the epidural right from the get-go. Yeah. really are a willing woman who wants to have a go, but you're in this crisis of confidence. And this is the sort of acculturated language that comes through. And so she doesn't know whether she has to give you the epidural because you're going to be one of the women who's going to put a complaint in against the midwives after saying, I was refused an epidural, which happens. Yeah, right. Or going to be one of those women who absolutely does want that um, nurturing support from those midwives. So that's very important. Just to say about that as well, you can hear I'm on a roll here now. Yes, it's fantastic. Keep Um, going. the, The research now coming through from a number of different westernized countries is saying that fathers, partners are most satisfied with the births when the mother is on an epidural. So now that that's coming through, you know, when I just weep, weep, I weep, I weep, because that is, if if it works better for the hospital for the mother to be on the epidural, if it works better for the midwife because there's no emotion work for the mother to be on an epidural, if it works better for the partners because then there's no emotion work for them. Uh, so women struggling in that normal physiological functional pain of the demands of an escalating labor designed exactly how it's supposed to, yeah. how do they hold that space? How do they hold that space? So this is why I call it that Trojan horse, or more generally the fucking epidural, <laughs> which isn't to say, I mean, they can sometimes be absolutely brilliant, like all of yeah. the interventions all of the interventions, absolutely brilliant when they're meeting really a true medical need Mm -hmm. after all the things that we know can help a birth to unfold, whether that's about the functional physiological pain or it's about positioning or what have you. If all of those things are done but still there's there's something which is really going into that medical realm, of course, we're very privileged in Australia to have access to those interventions when they're necessary, mm-hmm. as opposed to many, many women across the world who need them but can't access them. So I'm, you know, I'm not anti-intervention. Yeah, brilliant. I'm anti this the mindset, the whole paradigm shift that's coming with these interventions becoming, um, you know, the mainstay of supposedly normal birth, which is hijacking really that potential for normal physiological childbirth. So this is what women who want to have a go, and if they're in the hospital, they've got to search out those midwives or, of course, take somebody in with them. Mm -hmm. That may be a doula, it might be a private midwife, or it may be a friend who's had a normal birth. They've got to be careful. (laughs) It's got to be somebody, you might think it's your mum or whatever, it's got to be somebody who, because when the mother is in that crisis of confidence, she actually does want out. Mm. She's not holding on to her higher wish of, yeah, I want to have a go at normal physiological childbirth. No, now she does want the epidural. Yeah. You know, if you read my first book, I talk about that thing. They, they're, when that gets going, they're sort of ringing the circle and they're looking to see who they can get 
support in a sympathy. Yeah. Yeah. That could be your mother if you got her in there, or your sister, partner, or your best friend, or gotta be somebody who's got some expertise in how to hold that space mm-hmm. and some resources to encourage you into the work of it. I say to the guys, you know, when I do my my course. You know, if you're playing football or basketball or soccer or, I don't know, or in the weights room or what have you, sure, you might like your, your partner to be there at the end of the game to celebrate, mm-hmm. like them to be watching and marvelling at how brilliant you are. But if, let's say football, if you're in the, or basketball and you're in that and the, the, guy, the, the player that you're supposed to be covering or you're supposed to be on on the case with or you're supposed to be dodging and getting away from them you know you just can't do it you can't find the way to make it work you're not going to go to your wife or your or your partner who knows nothing about the bloody game in the first place about can you see he's you know they're all over me and I can't find a way to get three of them I don't know how no you're going to go to somebody who knows a thing about what you're trying to do exactly yes you'll love it when you're all warm and beautiful and celebrating and when it's all finished and you've done a brilliant job and you've been supported through the tough bits of it and so on. But somehow or other we you know, we've gotten men in that birth space and it's beautiful because it's changing fathering a bit out of sight, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Also, we've got uninitiated in the potency of birth and birthing energy mm-hmm. in that birth space and expecting them to know exactly what to do and how to do it and so on, so on. And then we wonder why, of course, they get emotionally overwhelmed and the epidural takes care of everybody's emotional overwhelm. So there are some things that I think they should be on the case about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe one other thing to say in there. Here's the phys ed teacher in me again. Partners need to understand the work of it, the physical work of it, which means they also need to think about what I call a birth circuit. So this is setting up that birth space. Mm So that if they're going into hospital, this is one of the first tasks that the partners have to do is set up that space. Yeah. Where for her to stamp, somewhere for her to walk, somewhere for her to pace, somewhere for her to sit, somewhere for her to be on the ball, somewhere for her to kneel and lean on something, somewhere for get the bloody bed out of the centre of the room. Mm. Those birth spaces. When you go to the hospital, it is yelling at you. Yeah. It is subliminally and not so subliminally it is telling you get up on this fucking bed <laughs> lie still and we are going to do things to you yeah. which is the message in hospitals and if you're going into hospital because you're unwell because you're an accident victim because you're in danger of things going wrong in your body that's the message you want from that bed mm-hmm. get up we'll take care of you we're going to do things to you that will make you better but in the birth space, which is a process of women working with their bodies to birth their babies and babies, women working to open their bodies, let their babies do their thing, that message from the hospital, which is the birth room set up like an intensive care ward, is exactly the same message that is given to somebody who's in peril. Yeah? Yeah. We want to, you need to claim that space, get the bed out of the way, make a space for moving and dancing and changing position, up, down, water, this, that. If you must use the bed, crank it up high so she can lean against it, crank it down low so she can kneel and lean against it, but not as the mainstay of that this is where you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Claim that space, claim that I also talk about a playlist. Mm, yes, definitely. There's <laughs> ways to claim the hospital space. Have a brilliant playlist. <laughs> from the point of view of the hospital staff, I'm talking so fast now, so much to say. Um, from the point of view of the hospital staff, this is their workplace. Yeah. You, no, 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 it's not their workplace. This is the sacred place that your baby is going to be born in. Mm-hmm. So you want to claim that space. So get a great playlist and I think it's called a shuffle, you know, just some of your favorite yeah. music. You don't know what's going to come on, helping to fill. Well, hopefully you're not going to labor, going to the hospital too early where you've got a lot of hours to yeah. to fill. But if you just need to claim that space, then you need some stamina music, you know, something with some really strong, steady, steady, steady beat. Mm-hmm. You, you want some uplift mu- music. I usually say you also need, you know, you've been at the wedding or the party. You've been dancing up a storm. Your feet are killing you. You're just absolutely exhausted. Somebody's got to carry you home. Mm-hmm. And then that song comes on. Yes. 
and you're on the dance floor again and so you need some of that sort of you know just that and of course you need relaxation music and for women in that last trimester if not before choose some relaxation music it could be some specific relaxation music it could be the music from your pregnancy yoga class brilliant preparation it could be just music that you've used for meditation it could be just a beautiful classical music that you know and love and that calms you down i don't care what it is but in those last few last two months last six weeks habituate yourself to relaxation to that music Mm -hmm. and your partner needs to know what that music is and that because if you're habituating yourself you're habituating your baby so it's brilliant for after the baby's born as well um habituated to relaxing releasing slowing the breathing settling your your internal agitation because you've habituated yourself by two, three times a week in late pregnancy, maybe every second day, maybe every day, mm. to that particular music. Very important tool, used in hospital and at home, so on. So we've got many more tools at home, triggers at home for relaxation, for delight, for surrender, for softness, for enjoyment, for... Yeah, in hospital, the messages from the hospital are so, so strong that we've got to have as many creative ways as of interrupting those sort of subliminal messages that are coming out yeah. of the architecture, coming out of the setup, coming out of the routines and so on, so on, mm-hmm. the smell, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some bits and pieces about yeah. Fantastic information. Thank you so much, Ria. I know you're pressed for time, so it means the world to me to have you on today. Yeah. And I just want to say a deep thank you for coming on and sharing all your wisdom and knowledge with us. I'm truly humbled to be chatting with you today, so thank you. <laughs> Good. I'm happy, Sky. I'll have to get you on again because I feel like there's so much we still need to talk about. We only really skimmed the surface, didn't we? Yeah, I'd be more than happy because we haven't even begun to go into the deeper work under the surface. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I would love to have you back. Okay. Let's do a winter version, yeah? Okay. (laughs) Autumn, let's go into winter. Lock it in. So beautiful to speak with you and whoever is listening, really it's stacked against what's going on not only within the birth culture and but how this is now being absorbed in the wider cultural messages about birth. Mm -hmm. It's so undermining of your woman's sense of capacity of what – is possible so seek out the stories that are going to support you to to shift into a more expansive way of understanding and and have a brilliant time you know I, I finish all my works off off with the thing of you don't have to like it to do it brilliantly yeah. you know if you only do the things in life that you like well pity help the kids that you're going to be raising that's one thing I would say this is true you don't have to like it to do it brilliantly and there's going to be some times during that labor where you are not going to like it but you can still do it brilliantly particularly with good support yeah if you like some parts of it well how brilliant that brings us to the end of the show guys oh I could have listened to her talk for hours, honestly. There is so much we didn't have time to cover today, though, so I will for sure be getting Rhea back on the show to dive deeper into some of those topics that we missed. But in the meantime, you guys can have full access to all of her knowledge right now by purchasing one or both of her books, which are available on the PBA website. The link is in the bio of my Instagram page. I cannot recommend them highly enough, guys. Rhea's first book was one of two that lifted the blindfolds off my eyes and gave me this new paradigm around birth. So get your hands on one of or both of those and arm yourself with all the knowledge. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show and my chat with the birth queen. Let me know what you think of today's episode over on the PBA Instagram page and I'll see you guys next week for another episode of Positive Birth Australia. 